Well, good morning again, everybody. Welcome uh, to Hillcrest today, and a special welcome to those of you that are worshiping with us at our Spanish Trail campus. We love you all and are so thankful for you. I'll be over there live and in person at the Spanish Trail campus this time next Sunday. So we want a full house, and I want to see all of you there and bring somebody with you. It's going to be a great time in the Lord. Welcome those of you that are worshiping with us online, either on Facebook Live or on our website. Really grateful to have you, and Merry Christmas to everybody. I appreciate a special shout out to Dan Davis, Dustin Scott here. I'm telling you, it's been a rough last four days. Judy and I have been sick, 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 flu or something like it. And so until last night, I wasn't even sure if I was going to be here. So I sent those boys my sermon, and I said, you all all better stay up late and read this thing 40 times because you may be using it tomorrow. And here I am showing up, and they've done all that work for nothing. But I appreciate the effort. They are ready to go, and they are team players. So thank you, Dan. Thank you, Dustin. Put your hands together for the great staff that we have here at Hillcrest. Matthew chapter 1 is where we'll be for a few minutes this morning as we continue in our biographies of Bethlehem. One of the most popular television series in recent days is the one on Netflix that has popularized the early reign of British Queen Elizabeth II. It's a series called The Crown. Anybody watch The Crown? On Netflix, yep, hands all over the place. Uh, When it first came out a year before last, our family watched it. In fact, we binge watched it. We watched all 10 episodes, I don't know, in two or three days. We just, one led to another, led to another. And it was just great. One of the themes of that series um, is, of course, the troubled early marriage of Queen Elizabeth uh, to her husband, Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh. The marital stress came primarily as a result of Philip not being able to handle constantly living in the shadow of the crown. He did a lost. He, he can't speak on his own, can't say what he thinks, can't really do anything without the blessing and the permission of his wife, like 90% of the guys at Hillcrest. Can't really make his own way. Can't do what he feels led to do. Uh, Even his own son, his young son, the Prince of Wales, outranks him in terms of importance, priority, heir to the throne. His job was one thing, the queen. That was his job. Do whatever you have to do to make her look good. And in the early years of their marriage, he didn't know what to do with that. And it nearly frustrated the life out of him. When it comes to the Christmas story, the Christmas limelight, so to speak, of all of the biographical characters that make up the Christmas story, without a doubt, the most overlooked is a man named Joseph of Nazareth. In our nativity scenes, and we have them all over the house from all over the world, Joseph is practically relegated to the role of an extra. The animals 
get more playtime than Joseph of Nazareth. He's usually the last one out of the box and the first one back in when Christmas is over. Jesus gets top billing, followed closely by Mary. Then we talk about the angels, we talk about the shepherds, we talk about the wise men. But if there were a question on family feud, name a character in the Christmas story. Joseph's name probably would appear somewhere near the bottom up on the big board if it even made the survey at all. Once you get out of the Christmas story and start reading through the rest of the gospel accounts, you will never hear or see of Joseph again. By and large, he's tended to become the forgotten man of Christmas, lost in the shadow of the manger. And yet, what little bit I know about Joseph leads me to believe that he deserves more than what he gets. What little is said about him in Scripture points to a man who's totally devoted to God, a man that risks everything in order to do the will of God. Let's look at the very familiar story. We're in the first gospel and the first chapter, and let's begin reading in verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, say it out loud with me together, God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord had commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. Father, would you grace us with your presence and speak to us by your spirit today. Hide the preacher behind the cross of Christ that we may see Jesus high and lifted up throughout this important message about a man who's come to be known as the earthly father of the the Lord Jesus Christ, a man of faith and obedience. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, Joseph's life uh, is important for those two reasons. Two fundamental things that we can mark about his life. First is his faith, and second is his obedience. Now, he's not the first man that comes to mind when you think of biblical characters of great faith. In fact, uh, he's not listed in Hebrews chapter 11, that great roll call of faith. But I think that he could be, maybe even should be. But he's not there. Instead, 
His faith in God is behind the scenes, but it's there nonetheless. And that faith and his decision to obey the call of God is remarkable on a number of levels. Let me give you three things to consider about Joseph this morning. First of all is that Joseph obeys in spite of the shock. And as he's minding his own business, the word of the Lord comes to him without question in a shocking kind of way. Joseph is a model to all of us in the house this morning because he quickly obeys the command of God even though he couldn't believe it when he first heard it. When he's given the announcement that he was going to be the father of a son that was not his by means of natural reproduction, uh, he has to process that for a while. And he does so without a word. Not so, for example, with Zechariah. Zechariah, of course, is the priest of Jerusalem that we read about early in Luke's gospel. And an angel shows up and speaks to Zechariah and gives him a prophecy that he's going to be a father in his old age. And Zechariah can't believe it. He denied the word of the Lord because he was an old man and because his wife was an old woman. When she was given the announcement that she was going to conceive and bear a son, Mary heard the word of the Lord but struggled with the word of the Lord. She has to process through the word of the Lord, what it would mean for her practically, what it would mean for her relationally. Joseph hears the word of the Lord and he doesn't give a word. He doesn't seem to really struggle. He may have, but he doesn't do it overtly. He simply hears and he obeys without a word. The thing about Mary and the thing about Zechariah is that when they had their encounters, both of them had direct encounters through a celestial messenger when they were up, about, moving, shaking. They were alert. They were going about their daily business. In fact, it wasn't just any angel that appeared to those two. It was like the head angel. It was a named angel. It was Gabriel himself. And when he showed up, there was no way to discount it. There was no way to explain it away. There was no doubt about it. They had been in the presence of an angelic messenger, and they surely knew it. But the Bible says here in Matthew 1 that Joseph got a visit uh, from an anonymous angel. There's no angelic name that's given here. It may have been Gabriel, but we're just simply not told that. Matthew doesn't tell us. For all we know, it was Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life. But Matthew says that he's given an angelic epiphany, but not in the daytime, not as he's chopping wood, not as he's fashioning a piece of furniture in his woodworking shop. He's given the word of God through the medium of a dream. Now, that kind of thing's easy to explain away because a lot of times you can have very vivid dreams. Y'all have vivid dreams? I have vivid dreams from time to time, but I usually don't attribute them to the Holy Spirit of God. Most of the time they could be attributed to something upsetting that I watched on television that I probably shouldn't have or something that I had eaten, a bad bowl of porridge before bed or something like that. That's what Ebenezer Scrooge did Uh, in the early part of the Christmas carol. He actually has an epiphany that he's trying to explain away as having eaten something that had upset his stomach. And people want to know, does God speak through dreams today? Interestingly enough, in the last month, I've had two conversations with people trying to figure out if a dream that they had 
was a direct revelation from God. And usually it doesn't take very long to figure that out because most of the time uh, it has nothing to do with God. And that was the case with the two people that I've talked to. I'm usually very suspicious about God speaking through dreams because they usually can and most of the time do come from other venues. But the fact withstanding, can God speak to us through a dream? Well, God can speak to us every way he wants to, amen. And if God wants to speak through a dream, he surely can do it. But you just want to make sure that you verify that through Scripture and that that doesn't run counter to scriptural teaching or cause you to have to violate your Christian conscience in some way. But just remember that even in the Bible, God speaking through dreams doesn't happen very often. It happens very rarely, even to the prophetic types of the Word of God. But Joseph knows this to be from the Lord. And he doesn't discount it. He, he doesn't try to uh, determine some way to attribute it to some other means or to some other medium. He's moved in his spirit. And when it was done, the Bible says in verse 24, when Joseph awoke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. And he did so in spite of the fact that the Lord was do, uh, requiring him to do a hard thing, a difficult thing, really a shocking thing. The woman to whom you are engaged is conceived with the child, and the child is not yours, and the child is not anybody else's that you know or anybody else's that you don't know. It doesn't come from another man. She's conceived by means of the Holy Spirit. It's going to be a boy, and you need to name him Jesus, Joshua, Yeshua, for he shall save his people from their sins, which is what the name Jesus means. The Lord is salvation. The Lord is deliverance. And then Gabriel's quote ends with that revelation. But I have a feeling that he reminded Joseph of something that he already knew, that this was not just a whim on God's part. This was actually a fulfillment of something that Joseph should have already known from biblical prophecy of the Old Testament. And maybe that's the reason that Joseph doesn't debate or that he doesn't argue because the way it's happening is the way it was supposed to have happened. And Matthew quotes to us, and maybe the angelic visitor conveyed it in the same way to, uh, to Joseph from Isaiah 7 and 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name what? Emmanuel, which means God with us. That's the son that Mary's going to bear, friend, and I'm going to deposit that son into your house. And that's the shocking part. I'm sure Joseph didn't go to bed that night thinking that he was going to get that word from the Lord. How often we hear the clear voice of God leading us to do something that's difficult, to do something that's shocking, to do something that's uncomfortable. And that could be something as simple as turning your life over to Jesus Christ and being saved. That's a hard thing for many people because it's going to mean rejection on the part of some. It's going to mean ridicule on the part of others. It's not always an easy. Sometimes following Jesus is the most natural thing in the world, and there's a lot of joy associated with that, and sometimes it's a very costly thing. And how often the case when the Spirit of God speaks to us and we know in our spirit what the right thing to do is, we hesitate. 
or we rationalize, or worse yet, we compromise, or we procrastinate. So many like Gideon. I mean, the Old Testament is full of stories, one right after another, where men of God heard the word of the Lord, and they shimmied, and they shook, and they hesitated, and they stalled, and they made excuses. Gideon, for example, when the word of God was clearly spoken to him, he's so shocked, he insists not on one, but on two signs, as if God showing up in an obvious way and speaking to him was not sign enough. Moses, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Jonah, man, they all hesitated when they heard the voice of the Lord. They all gave God excuses, but that, that's not true with Joseph. He didn't argue, he didn't debate, he didn't hesitate, he didn't back up, he didn't run to Tarshish, he didn't retreat, he simply woke from sleep and he did what the Lord said without a word. And that's his MO. If, if Joseph has an MO, it's Joseph the silent. Joseph without a word. There's not a word recorded coming from the lips of Joseph in the entire Bible. The man never says anything that's recorded in Scripture. Not a single word uttered from the adoptive father of the Lord Jesus Christ. Mary's got a lot to say in the Christmas accounts. In fact, she shows up sporadically through the gospel ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ, but not Joseph. You remember the story when Jesus got separated from his parents after the Passover and they have to traipse all the way back to Jerusalem to find him? When that happens, it's not Joseph who's in the lead there. It's not Joseph who's speaking. It's Mary who tries to get to the bottom of it. Joseph was in the shadows. And here, when God spoke a difficult word to Joseph, he neither dialogues with God, he doesn't debate with God, as would be the case with his adoptive son to come. Joseph opened not his mouth. He heard the word of the Lord, and he did the word of the Lord, and he did it without a word. So Joseph obeys. His faith is remarkable, <clears throat> and he does so in spite of the shock. Secondly, Joseph obeyed in spite of his fear. The shock led to fear, no question about it. Came in the midst of his engagement to a woman who was pregnant with a son that was not his. That would be enough to rattle any of us. The child that Mary was carrying, of course, was fathered, not by Joseph, but by the Holy Spirit. And the problem was that at the time we meet Joseph, he didn't know anything about this. He knows that <clears throat> something's going on with Mary, apparently, because he'd naturally assumed that Mary had been unfaithful to him. So he knows she's pregnant. He knows she's carrying a baby. And apparently, Mary hadn't said a word about him. Mary treasured those things up in her heart, but apparently had not revealed anything to Joseph about God's involvement to this point. Or if she did, Joseph, for whatever reason, was skeptical. They're not formally married yet. They are engaged, which was close. They're, they were betrothed, which was a legal action that would eventually lead to a marriage. The engagement lasted for about a year. Process of marriage was a lot different then than it is today. Uh, engagement involved this formal agreement. A father would go out and seek a, 
an appropriate bride for his son. Those marriages were, of course, arranged. And that engagement will last for about a year in which the couple didn't live together. They, they didn't have sexual relations with one another. In fact, that sexual action was the consummation that sealed the marriage relationship, was the final act that culminated in the couple actually being no longer engaged but married. And any sexual activity that took place within uh, the formal engagement period was considered out of bounds. It was considered adultery, and it was indeed grounds for a formal divorce. And this explains why Joseph, until the angel showed up and until the angel shed light on the matter, this explains why Joseph had determined to follow the counsel of the rabbis and formally put Mary away, divorce Mary. He'd made an assumption that she'd violated the terms of the engagement. He'd made an assumption that she brought reproach on the family name. During that period, the law still called for stoning in these kinds of cases, cases of adultery. We know that from John chapter 8 where Jesus has brought a woman caught in the act of adultery. But by this time, most of the time, stoning didn't take place. Divorce was the preferred option, and that's what Joseph is seeking. And the reason that he's seeking it is because of the way the Bible describes his character. The Scripture says Joseph was what kind of man? Joseph was a just man. In other words, Joseph was a righteous man, upright in character, faithful to the law of God. So at first, he didn't feel like he had any option. His integrity, his character was at stake in his own mind. But even then, Joseph shows the kind of man that he was because he tempers the righteous streak running all the way through his being with this comport of tenderness and mercy and sensitivity and compassion and that he desired to put Mary away how? Quietly. Settle out of court. Don't make a big deal about it. Don't, 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 don't cause her to <clears throat> lose face any more than she has to. When the law accused Mary, Joseph showed mercy, and he would not put her to shame. So, with all that as backdrop, it's easy to understand why the first words out of the angel's mouth are among the first words out of the mouth of the angel to Mary. Same words. Do not what? Do not fear. Because if Joseph is going to do what the angel's telling him to do, there's the potential for the same kind of public embarrassment that Mary was so concerned about. People be automatically assuming that he was marrying an adulteress, and that could cost him his social standing. could also cost him economically in terms of people diverting their business away from his carpenter shop. Man, a carpenter's business in a little town like Nazareth, man, that depended on building up the goodwill of people over a long period of time. Joseph's father was probably a carpenter, and his father before him was probably a carpenter. They'd been doing it probably in the same place for a couple, three generations, maybe more, and they'd built this great reputation. Now all of that's on the line, potentially. Not only that, <clears throat> he would be uh, potentially uh, subjected to the same backstreet gossip, the, the malicious slander 
that would characterize any little town like Nazareth, people talking all the time about stuff that's going on or making stuff up based on rumor or innuendo. All of that was a likelihood and probably did happen. And yet Joseph faces his fear with faith. He obeys God without a word. He's a remarkable man because he obeys in spite of the shock. He obeys in spite of the fear, but also he obeyed in spite of the consequences. And obedience to God is always the right thing to do, but it would be naive to think that you can obey God and there not be consequences this side of heaven. When God calls you to do a hard thing, that's going to be a consequential decision on your part. 26 years ago this year, I was ordained to the gospel ministry, and I've had a wonderful ride with the Lord, preaching the gospel, ministering to hurting lives, being a blessing as much as I can to people. I've loved being in the ministry, but I can tell you from personal experience, obedience carries consequences. I mean, there were people in my family that thought I was crazy because of what I turned my back on in order to follow the will of the Lord. The decision to follow the will of the Lord led to uh, me separating from my family, not in a bad sense, but just in a geographical sense. I had to leave home. I had to move hundreds of miles away. It's been that case in that way since 1991. Immediate consequences, long-term consequences to obedience. Sometimes you won't even realize what the consequences are until you've started journeying with the Lord. You say yes to God, start on the journey with God, you begin to follow God, and then the consequences reveal themselves. There were both immediate and long-term consequences for Joseph. The immediate consequence found in verses 24 and 25. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth <clears throat> to a son. And that's interesting because remember, the consummation of the wedding ceremony was the sexual union of the man and the woman. That didn't happen with Mary and Joseph. He had to forego that until after the baby was born, presumably by the command of the Lord. He didn't want anybody to ever to be able to say that that was his son naturally. And so the Bible makes it very clear. He did not know her until she had given birth to a son. So that's about a year almost after they were married before the two of them could enjoy intimacy together as husband and wife. That was an immediate consequence. But then there would be a lifetime of consequence because no sooner had he married Mary, they had to drop everything. They had to leave Nazareth. They had to go to Joseph's ancestral home down in Bethlehem to register for the census. And that, of course, had to happen <clears throat> because that had to get the birth mother to the city of David, which was the ancestral home of Joseph. That's where the baby had to be born, where the prophets said the Messiah would be born in the city of David, the city of Bethlehem. Then once it, well, he was born, they had to run for their lives all the way to Egypt because a crazy king wanted to take the child's life. And think about that, man. That was a hard trip for this family and, an, and, a, and a young child. They, they didn't have a minivan. They didn't have a 
Interstate 10 that was very convenient, straight shot all the way down. There were no McDonald's. There were no Cracker Barrel Old Country stores. How in the world did they do it? There were no Hampton Inns for breaks along the way. There was no Egyptian branch of Joseph's carpenter shop. I mean, he'd get down there. He didn't have any way to work. He could work with his hands, but he would have to find some way to support himself. And there they were in the strange land where people practice weird religious stuff. And there weren't a lot of Jews because God rarely sent Jews down to Egypt. And they didn't speak the language and they didn't know the customs and, and there they were. And he probably got there and thought, what in the world have I done? But he moved forward in faith and he accepted the consequences. And then once they got back to Nazareth, he had to settle in on raising a child that was not his by birth. I mean, think about that. The Bible says Jesus was the image of the invisible God. But Jesus was not born in the image of Joseph. How would you like to have been Joseph? And everybody kept referring to your son as the son of Mary. Jesus, son of Mary. That was almost never done. A son was always referred to as the son of his father not the sign of his mother. So for Jesus to be referred to as the son of Mary, highly unusual, a day when boys were always directly connected with their father. I've often wondered what must have run through Joseph's mind as they sat at home or at the dinner table, and he looked at that young boy who had absolutely no resemblance to him whatsoever, no physical likeness. Everybody's always said through the years, Whitney looks just like you. Whitney looks just like you. She's you made over. And thank the Lord, she's kind of outgrown that now. Praise God. But nobody ever said that about Jesus, ever, in terms of his own earthly father. And yet Joseph was the God-appointed father figure in the home of Jesus. I mean, think about that. Of all the people on the earth, when God determined in the fullness of time to send his son into the world and give him an earthly father, someone to help teach him how to walk, and someone to help teach him morality and play games with him and encourage him, and somebody to teach him a trade, whereby he could support himself. Of all the people in the world that God could have chosen for that, he didn't place the Son of God in the home of the emperor. He didn't place the Son of God in the home of a pharaoh. He didn't place the Son of God in the home of a governor or in the home of a military champion or in the home of a business titan. He placed the eternal son of God in the home of a humble carpenter from an out-of-the-way place called Nazareth. How remarkable is that? And even though Joseph is silent throughout the scriptures, make no mistake, his influence speaks volumes. 
Because when Jesus started preaching, how did Jesus refer to God? Two ways, Father and Abba. Abba, do you know how unusual that is in rabbinic history? In all of the writings of the rabbis, in all of the literature of the Jews from the beginning, no one had ever referred to God as Abba, Papa. That, that would have been considered disrespectful. And yet that's how Jesus referred to God and how we've been taught we can approach God by faith. Now, why did Jesus do that? Well, for one, that's the kind of relationship that God wants to have with us, cozy, intimate. But I think, too, at least in part, Jesus did that because that's how he had come to know Joseph. Joseph had been a good reflection for 30 years, maybe not quite that long, because we don't know how long Joseph was on the scene, but for a good while, a good reflection as a righteous man of the character of God. Y'all know something? The real measure of a man, not determined by money. It's not determined by wealth. The measure of man's not determined by riches. It's not determined by business, professional accomplishment. The real measure of a man is determined by what happens at home. Things like faithfulness, integrity, gentleness, humility. Things that are obvious to the people <clears throat> with whom you are most intimate in life and who are around you most in life. The real measure of man is reflected by his obvious love for God and his obvious love of family. And in that respect, Joseph the silent is Joseph the remarkable. He's a man of faith and a man of obedience he obeyed God without so much as a word. And because of that, he need not be forgotten or neglected anymore. He's a man worthy of our admiration, and he's a man worthy of our respect. God give us more men in our churches and in our homes like Joseph of Nazareth. This is the word of God and all God's people said.